On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm Andy Wilson along with co-host Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you today? I'm good, sir. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? It's doing well. Thank you, Andrew, for asking. Awesome. Our guest today is Roger Joseph Manning, Jr. Roger Joseph Manning, Jr. has enjoyed a long and fruitful career as a touring keyboardist, session player, arranger, and producer. His latest project we're going to talk to him about today is the Licorice Quartet. Roger's arranging career began as early as 1989 when he began arranging string, bass, wind, and vocal ensembles for his first band, Jellyfish, which he co-founded. Out of the ashes of Jellyfish arose a second band that he co-founded, Imperial Drag, which saw overwhelming overseas success, particularly in England and Japan. From there, he co-founded another band, all-vintage electronic duo known as the Moog Cookbook. I love that name. This group was started solely as a means of having a forum to express its love for the bygone era of vintage synthesizers and exotic keyboards. Ultimately, it became his calling card for longtime friend and collaborator, Beck Hansen. Roger began his over 20-year and still active relationship as Beck's sideman, touring the world and recording critically acclaimed albums, not to mention work with other musicians, such as Johnny Cash, Fun, Paramore, and others. Please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Roger Joseph Manning, Jr. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. Hey, Roger. Man, it's an honor to talk to you today. First of all, one of the most intriguing things about your new group, the Licorice Quartet, which is three guys is that within all the incredible songwriting, arranging, and production, there's a sense of humor as well. Our listeners should go straight to YouTube and watch Fadoodle, which I believe is an ancient term for fornication, I'm not sure, and Lighthouse Spaceship, both from Threesome Volume 1, which was released in May of 2020. Great songs and videos. I love the Major Tom guy floating in space in Lighthouse Spaceman, and the fact that you never see the band's faces on Fadoodle. Plus, the tunes are fantastic. It's so well put together and so many unexpected little things. Just fabulous stuff. If I was going to try to describe the sound of your band, I started with the three Ps, power, prog, pop, but something like that. But if you like great music with a bit of sense of humor, you need to hear these guys. 
So as a youngster, you became fascinated with ragtime music, I read, and began taking piano lessons. Can you take us back to that point in your life and up through your time at USC studying composition and on to the formation of Jellyfish, sir? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, actually, what happened was all I wanted to do was play drums from the age of uh, three or four, like most little boys. Good for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> don't talk to me about anything else. And... Um, uh, because I wouldn't shut up about it, my mom and dad, uh, figured let's get him some music lessons, but my parents were smart enough to realize, well, if we're going to pay for this, he might as well learn some chords and harmony as well. Uh, in addition to rhythm and because they couldn't afford an actual drum set. So, uh, my grandparents had just donated a beat up piano to us and there were no guitars lying around. So piano was going to be the instrument. Um, a teenage girl down the street began teaching all the neighborhood kids piano lessons. Um, and she was beautiful. So I was five years old and I said, sign me up. Now, <clears throat> I, I never practiced. I didn't care. All I wanted to play was drums. So I almost quit piano twice. Uh, the first time I didn't quit because <clears throat> the movie The Sting had just come out with the Marvin Hamlish, Scott Joplin soundtrack. And I was like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And what uh. I was hearing for the first time was overt jazz harmony, which obviously I'd not heard, save the occasional Burt Bacharach song from my childhood or something like that. So um, I couldn't get enough of that. And I, I, I said, <laughs> my piano teacher, why do you have, why am I playing this Mozart stuff, which is the same three chords over and over again? I don't, I don't, I, give me some of this. And so she threw the sheet music in front of me and I was like, oh my God, this is too hard. But now I had a challenge. So we worked mm -hmm. through that and I started playing some ragtime and that's what saved me the first time. And then I got bored again. After that phase came and left, uh, a drum set arrived. My uncle sold me his secondhand Ringo oh. Abalone Pearl five piece uh, from 66, I think. Nice. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, boy, did that save my butt. I just turned on the radio and uh, started learning to play along with the radio, um, <clears throat> which was a great pop schooling uh i should have taken some drum lessons at the time that would have helped but um you know we had it in band class so at least i had match grip down but um do you still have the drum set uh no i actually sold it uh oh. and it also didn't survive uh one some of the shells got beat up in a storage facility which was unfortunate um <clears throat> uh and i even i <laughs> i had a full uh, blue vista light at one point as well and as part i of did my, too an octoplus oh my god did you have did you have the Octoplus with the eight toms yeah. and the two bass drums? Yeah. Oh, man, you're the only other guy I've ever talked to that had the same kit. In fact, some of those drums are on the Imperial Drag album, uh, but I, I've, I've since sold that kit, you know, buy, sell, buy, sell, <clears throat> so I can get more of these things. Anyway, uh, so the second time I didn't quit piano, and I was long-winded to answer your question, but um, uh, I joined the Columbia House Record Club because I wanted a bunch mm. of Kiss albums. And my mom said, well, I'll let you join, but at least get me a Chicago record. You know, I was like, mm. oh, that's cool. I like those guys. So we got Chicago's greatest hits. Well, Columbia House will be no mystery to uh, people who participate in that. They completely screwed up the order. I got like two Kiss records and like five Chicago records. I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? And it didn't occur to me that, hey, you might want to just package it back up and said, you guys screwed up. Give me my money back. Send the right record. I said, well, this is what I got. Oh, well, <laughs> get this, get this, this is my 13 records for a penny. <laughs> Still a good deal. 
I'm so glad you brought those up. I haven't thought about those forever. That was I had that. That too, was an man. amazing experience, though. Oh when, God, you would, yes. when you would see that sitting on your front step, that absolutely, box, oh, just yeah. like you know, you could hear the heavens opening up. Well, it was, it was Christmas. Yeah, exactly. It was musical yeah, Christmas. Fabulous. Uh, of course, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I started discovering Chicago B cuts and uh, got into some deep cuts, particularly their first three or four very, very progressive jazzy albums. So it was Roger's entry into Jazz 101 along with the Steely Dan and all the stuff that's happening at the time. Uh, but if you also remember the Musicland stores, we had those, I know, on the West Coast where <clears throat> it was just a generic music store in the mall, but in the back of the music yep. store, so they had all the sheet music for the hit parade. So you could go, oh, here's that Blondie song I love on the radio. What? There's the piano music for it. How's that even happening? Um, right. I started seeing all these uh, Chicago hits that... Uh, I didn't know existed in music form, brought him home, started teaching myself chords because that's not what was happening in legit piano uh, schooling where I did learn the skill of reading. Um, but chord harmony, none of that theory, none of that's happening. But thanks to Chicago, I said, wow, I like how that sounds. What is that? What is it? Oh, it's a C triad, but he's adding some other weird notes. What does that mean? And why are they making my stomach feel all different? Um, so that's how that happened. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. That eventually led me to USC music school. I, I, I answered this question for somebody the other day. The only reason I went to music school is I didn't know what I wanted to do with music. Uh, in high school, I was absolutely convinced this is, there's no other life here, but music 24 hours a day. I got to figure out what that looks like. But I honestly didn't know if I wanted to be in film scoring or start my own band or be in, in the technical engineering side of it. it. The whole thing was a giant mystery to me. Um, so being in Los Angeles and exploring the wide scope of music that was being explored here in the mid eighties um, while, you know, going deeper into theory and composition by day um, was of tremendous value. I've got to ask you just because I, I became more familiar with you today than ever before. Um, and listening to Jellyfish and listening to your 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 uh, Moog project, you clearly have an affinity for Van Dyke Parks and uh, people like that, um, which I love. You know, I'm a huge Brian Wilson Pet Sounds fan, but I can see that in e even when you start a song off that's aggressive and sounding like, oh, this is going to be a rock pop song. Somewhere in the middle of it, there's a kettle drum and a muted bass, and then there these phenomenal Carl Wilson vocals coming in. I, I love the way you break down your music. Where did that come from? Uh, just being a fan. I mean, really, you know, I saved my money as a little boy, like we all did from our paper route to go try to buy a $7 piece of vinyl. So very first thing I spent my money on was Kiss Alive 1. Then three months later, I had enough money for a second record, and that was Beach Boys Endless Summer. Oh, uh, yeah. So... See, again, I always remind everybody, and this be no mystery to any of you, in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, the hit parade <laughs> couldn't have been more um, uh, diverse. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you've got an Earth, Wind and Fire funk jam, mm -hmm. killing it in one respect. Then the next song is Gary Newman Cars. Then the next song is some Pablo Cruz Yacht Rock Doobie Brothers uh, thing. And then you've got some disco instrumental. Don't forget the Carpenters, you know. No, I, I, I will, will never forget them because I, I steal more from them uh, harmonically uh, for vocal arranging than most people would like to uh, believe. Um, Interesting. 
So uh, I thought music was, I thought the top 10 was always going to be like that. And it's not anymore and hasn't been for, Boy, hasn't boy been for it's while. far from Highly that. one dimensional. No and there's many, many reasons for that. <clears throat> uh, but uh, so, you know, like I said, Kiss and what they were mm-hmm. doing in rock and roll and theater Mm-hmm. as important and influential to me as an eight-year-old as an eight-year-old as uh these highly jazz influenced four freshman tonalities i was hearing from brian wilson and his pals um and so it there was no right or wrong you either resonated with it or you didn't yeah 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 sure yeah and um so you could have this this beautiful um yeah carpenter's ballad one minute that's transporting you in, in one way. <clears throat> and then, uh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, somebody, your, your, your friend comes over and says, have you ever heard black Sabbath? Check this Sabbath, bloody Sabbath album. It's, it's the most evil yeah. thing that's ever existed. <clears throat> and you're just, you're just constantly, it was just constantly having your mind blown, having your mind blown. And that whole, that whole, you know, I mean, rush is one of the bands that helped graduate me into the yes. And Genesis world. Right. Cause they were kind of entry level prog. And, yes. And um, well put. Well put. Yeah. And that's not that's not dissing them in any respect. I have my favorite Rush albums, like anybody. And you know, I I I probably practiced drumming because I knew I couldn't do it. So I wanted to feel like maybe I can do some of it. Maybe I, which was Rush Hemispheres. I put that album on, forty five minutes. I'm gonna just stumble through this and see how far I get. Yeah. Um, yeah. I could go on and on. <laughs> well, I, I have to say when I listen to your music. It evokes all of the things you're talking about and the infatuation you have to to go after or not not to emulate, but to certainly listen to and be influenced by. But when I was listening today, I was just going, there's Van Dyke Parks I, oh, and there's Brian and there's 10CC and there's Toy Matinee and there's Tears for Fears. Um, Queen, it's just fabulous. The, the palette that you work with, it's an amazing achievement. I mean, a lot of us, you know, in my age group, generation, whatever, we were all more or less inspired by the same things. But frankly, that's what still gets me out of bed in the morning. Uh, uh, Figuring out, I'm still intrigued and perplexed by what many of my heroes did to get to the finish line. Um, You know, people asking me, so what's, what's new that you're listening to and checking out? And I'm like, well, there are things, but they're very few and far between. And I have to dig so hard. Meanwhile, some independent record company just released, you know, three psych compilations from 1968 that I've never heard. It's got all these obscure psych pop bands from England all over it. And, was, and all that's exciting me way, way, way more. Yeah. Also. Right. Yeah. And it's just, but that's, that's just an extension of uh, who I am as a person. You know, I was born in 66. Well, that's revolvers coming out. So I'm not, I'm not the revolver generation. I learned, I learned about the Beatles through Badfinger and Cheap Trick and Wings and all these post Beatle bands and um, all me and my uh, collaborators have, have ever done is really, we've just kind of carried on in this tradition because one of the most important things for us has been writing something that's classic by virtue of the fact that we worship melody that already dates us. <laughs> that puts us in 80s, 70s, 60s. Yeah. Melody, melody became much less valued to the point of where now it's, it's by the pop community it's admittedly and willfully not valued. Yeah. If, the, if these generations want to do that, that's their prerogative. I'm not going to be at that party. Right. No. I, I need my soul massage with, with harmony and chromaticism and melody as much as I do 
uh, intricate and fun and groove uh, uh, rhythmic concept. There's EDM music I love. There's hip hop I love. And that's not, that's one dish in the seven course meal. Right. right. I need the rest of it. I appreciate your explanation because I, w- I was a fan during high school and college of Jellyfish and listened to that, uh, the first record, a lot at the time. And then every once in a while, it would come up and I'd revisit it, you know, kind of like you do. You go back through your catalog. But it didn't really occur to me until recently before, you know, lining up talking to you today. I'm like, man, this is 70s rock. <laughs> you know, I mean, those songs, you know, Joining a Fan Club and That Is Why and Baby's Coming Back. I mean, I love those songs. And I, but at the time in high school, if somebody would have said, oh, this is kind of reminds me of I would have, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have said that, you know, because I was obviously too, too cool back then. But you know, hearing you talk about it now, it makes complete sense, and and it wraps up the package for me because I have in my notes, Jellyfish was seventies rock, <laughs> you know. I have, well, yeah. and not, not to say you weren't completely, but the root of it is is obviously there. And I, so I, I yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I was right. So that's kind of sixties also. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a mixed bag of that. I mean, that's why you talk about Chicago. That's, and you talk about that's Kiss, what's cool and you talk about, about it. That's what's yeah. It's that's the what mixing I mean. pot, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. The, that's yeah. what I love about it. And I didn't realize that until recently. I guess. Uh, people have to understand that if you were, you know, driving on the van with us from from show to show, you know, we're listening and being inspired as much by the suite as we are Randy Newman "Sail Away." Uh, so there, there really is, you know, there's very much a. a a singer-songwriter school, but for us, so many of the singer-songwriter was just so boring. We're like, we're not about jeans and a t-shirt. We really enjoy the theater and the visual side of it, and we were excited to make MTV videos and see what we could do with that, and uh, mm-hmm. really play up into that. You know, joining a fan club, uh, pageantry, and 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 sensationalism of all that, and and we we love we simultaneously love all of the things that happened with British punk and then over into American punk. So everything from the damned and sex pistols and, and Susie and the Banshees to what happens when Husker do and the replacements and REM get a hold of those sounds. And, and uh, it's just like, give me a song, give me a song. And then we'll, we'll yeah. you know, fill in the blanks with the arranging and the, all the, the fun, fun stuff. The songs are great. You, the melodies are constructed well. The chord progressions are, take you in an unexpected place. But in, in the arrangements complement it so well. I mean, just so many surprises. I just went, no. <laughs> oh, wow. And then, ooh, and I'm not easily drawn into stuff like that. I mean, it's really thoughtfully done. But, you know, your arrangements, I mean, can you just talk about that a little bit? I mean, do you guys all sit in a room together? You're doing that or... I would say every record that I've been involved with, none of it really came from, hey, guys, let's jam through this chord progression a couple times and see what happens. No, it, there's, there's some kind of premeditative concept. Yeah. You shoot for that concept. Sure. You start throwing ideas that relate to that concept. And then you, you find out really quickly what's sticking and what's not. Like, well, that's a, I don't like that idea at all, but I had to hear it first. Yeah. Right. yeah. That, sure. It really gets arduous when you're trying background vocal experiments and acrobatics oh, i've heard oh. my head okay let's get to the piano arrange, arrange the notes and uh, this is going to be fantastic only to find out that you sound like frankie valley in the four seasons and that wasn't your goal at all you were hoping to get yeah. somewhere you know any place any place but yeah. Jersey boys. <laughs> any place but that yeah we're not interested in a doo-wop moment we're interested in some <laughs> uh, something other and um but you don't know until you hear it 
So it's a great exercise in patience. Again, I, I've never known any other way because the, the, the pop rock that is, has inspired me, uh, even, even if it is like a, a, a very punky kind of garage jam or, or a you know, rush power trio thing, there's, there's arrangement in it. Um, <laughs> and sure. sometimes it can go fast. Not really. Um, you know, you, I've worked with everybody who's like just a consummately trained, uh, highly improvisational musician, all the way to the opposite. People who've had no schooling, they're only self-taught. Um, they don't have command of, of jazz vocabulary. And both people run into the same roadblocks, um, mm -hmm. the same snags. And uh, you just have to be patient. And then as, as one of the songwriters, you, you know, you, you never want the vision to be watered down. And that's what's always so hard because mm. you have all these well-meaning people, producer, engineer, bandmates, record company, who are commenting on it. And you could, if you're a people pleaser, you can go, oh, well, sure, let's try that. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give it to you. You want trumpet on the outro of the song? Sure, I'll give it to you. Well, at the, and then at the end of the day, you're like, this isn't what I heard in that dream at three in the morning when, when I woke up. No, right. It's not for everybody. I mean, this, this is why bands break up. You know, I mean, this is yeah, sure. it's, uh, trying to let's get married. Let's, you know, let's agree on every financial and decision around the kids for the next 20 years. <laughs> and often the, one of the only reasons bands are even together, uh, they, they've lasted past the first two records because some level of money came in that was so much mm -hmm. better than working at the hardware store. It's like, all right, mm -hmm. all right, you take this one. Nope, I'm not going to challenge you. Let's do it. And, you know, sure. whatever. But uh, somehow bands like YouTube have been able to make that work. Speaking of relationships, so one of your longest musical relationships is with Beck. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the beginnings of that relationship and, uh, you know, what's maintained that over the years? <clears throat> what's maintained it yeah. is the miracle. You know, I'm right there with you. What's maintained it is the miracle that you have someone like him who, by, <laughs> he's walked this line between super high art conceptual artist and fan of pop music mm -hmm. I, I don't, everything he's done much to my amazement more or less has resonated with enough of the top of the bell curve the middle america mall goer that it's generated enough commerce that simultaneously allowed him to make left turns like all the time it's it's i yeah, like you said, I've been working with him off and on for 20 years, and I still marvel at when he makes a choice, uh, when he commits to something, why he does. And I, I'm not even saying it's that premeditated or calculated. It, it's just it's worked out. Um, so I, I was a fan before we uh, joined forces, before he, he had a falling out with his previous keyboard player, and I got the call to audition. Um, so it's really helped to be in a music making capacity with somebody who comes from a very different background than me. Um, yes, we have overlap influences, but he approaches, he just approaches it the, the whole, the whole uh, challenge uh, strategically differently than I do typically. So I've learned volumes uh, working with him. Now you mentioned earlier about how, um, having kind of a musicological background, having the vocabulary that you have, do you find working with Beck that he's the same way, or is he more is he more conceptual, and and thinks 
uh, through trial and error, or does he very clearly know what needs to go where? And and he's a he's a bit of an enigma that way. He is deliberately, consciously untrained. So you have to remember, he grew up in a house before his parents separated, where David Campbell, string arranger, uh, yeah. father, he says. I remember falling asleep at night, my dad working in the other room, arranging string parts on the ARP string ensemble. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm sorry, that will influence you, whether you think it's influencing you or not. Mm -hmm. You're you're hearing, you're being introduced to advanced harmony, period. Now, that doesn't mean you then went to music school and studied the great arrangers the last 300 years. Beck deliberately said, I had an opportunity to take guitar lessons and I didn't do it because I didn't want to sound like everybody else. He goes... I respected Van Halen, uh, but I didn't want to sound like him. Mm-hmm. And, and so he said, I, my, hope, my hope was in not taking traditional lessons, I wouldn't fall into the same trappings that I saw all these very talented people around me doing. That I was, yeah. that I was more interested in what happened when I kind of stumbled in and out of things. So he's, he's literally this super unique dichotomy. I, I certainly don't know of anybody else like him where he's, he's – one, he's simultaneously the innocence of a child hearing it for the first time and literally like not knowing any better. And he's super intellectual, highly brilliant. Not only is he well-read, he's so uh, cultured in mm-hmm. film, popular music, unpopular music. Um, uh, his, his mother uh, is the daughter of a very famous conceptual New York Fluxus artist. And she was uh, an artist herself. You know, she hung out with the, the uh, Warhol Velvet Underground community as a teenager. And so this is all, it, it, punk, uh, when punk launched in L.A. In, in, you know, 76, 77, Beck's mom was going to these clubs because she was only in her late 20s, early 30s. And she'd take her two children and the, the club would babysit them. There's pictures of Beck <laughs> as a seven-year-old wow. sitting on the side of a stage while, you know, X is playing. Wow. Now, Wow. All these things are informing this person we now know as Beck. And, right. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and I watch all this come out of him as as well as some book he just read, some movie he just watched in his, you know, 5000 uh volume Criterion collection of, of classic film. And the guy's like a huge Buster Keaton film and he's a, as mm-hmm. well as all the avant French, you know, new wave filmmakers you would expect him to be a fan of. And on and on and on. And at his, and at his core, he loves simple pop. You know, he, he appreciates what Taylor Swift and the Ramones are doing as much as anybody. So it's That's just cool. every time I hang out with him or have the luxury of making an extended album with him, it's a, it's a music school crash. You do, you're right. He stumbles beautifully and he flirts with those things without, without ever going there. I, I, I love that about him. He, he almost gets poppy and then suddenly it's just something much more special same with your music though man I, honestly i i i confess to not having been as familiar with you as i am now having spent the better part of the day looking at jellyfish and the moog project and so on and i i'm a huge fan of all the influences and i i caught the ragtime i thought well <laughs> there's definitely some you know i heard that and i thought not only is a ragtime you also enjoy bringing in the salvation army band to kind of uh, you know, to 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 be the underpinning of the ragtime is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> on the I have, I have a question on the live side, and, the, and one more question about Beck. When he was opening for you too on the Joshua Tree tour, were you out with him then? Yes, thankfully. 
Okay. <laughs> was, yeah. That was quite a special ex- three weeks. Yeah. Well, I bet. Wow. So um, I had the pleasure of working on a few of those shows and seeing them. And I've seen Beck before. So I've seen you guys several times. It's always a treat, always kind of a different show. You never know what to expect. But I'll be honest, going into that, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that experience because that stage was the coolest stage I've ever seen in person for a concert. But Beck came out there and just, you know, usually when you see an opening act on somebody else's stage like that, you're kind of like, eh, okay, well, this is a YouTube show, so what do you expect? But he owned it, man. The crowd was way into it, and I was like, good for him, man. I mean, I didn't, not that I didn't expect that, but what a, what a challenge that must have been. So you, can you talk about that part of it, I guess? Yeah, Psyche. I, I totally hear you. It's an undertaking to not be dwarfed by this YouTube stage set alone, no matter who you are, no matter no question. what a big presence right. you are or not. And, and we were all cognizant of that but most of us are trapped behind our instruments and yeah he you know he he rose to the occasion and you know he was as uh um, totally self-conscious and, and nervous about any of this as we were yeah and he, he just went for it <laughs> you couldn't tell because it just really worked I, I specifically remember watching the show here in indianapolis and just being like wow man they're really that's great what a cha- what a challenge you know so anyway we're going to transition a little bit and talk about uh, album artwork. You know, I look at Jellyfish and I go, oh, there's definitely kind of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a, a Fillmore East kind of, or Fillmore West kind of hippie, you know, especially in the logo, you know. And then, then I look at the more, um, I'm looking at the, uh, the, the Licorice Quartet with the black, looks like a black uh, pelican or, or a, a, a crane. I mean, that's way more sophisticated, a lot more... Um, um avalon by what's his name um roxy yeah 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 it feels that way so i I don't know where your roots are i mean you definitely are quite free in the way you are i mean the moog cookbook is a really quirky kind of uh 2001 space oddity kind of moment um you know and and the you know the the look of the the redhead girl on the cover of spilt milk is Reminds me of the kind of crudeness, but the the iconic presence of of blind faith, where the girls holding the chromium, you know, it's pretty pretty technically simplistic cover, but powerful. So what what makes first of all, how involved are you? Uh, how how um, important has art been to you, both as a consumer and as someone who? Um, wants to kind of control the trajectory and the, the outward appearance of who you are. All of the above. I, I grew up in the 70s when uh, taking a two-record set into your room, shutting the door, turning off the light, flipping on the black light switch, uh, imbibing <laughs> something possibly if you wanted to, and getting lost in where those records transported you, I, I could think of... A no greater experience uh, short of than yeah. sharing that with your friends or extending that yeah. concert setting. <clears throat> and of course, what led the way? Well, the hypnosis album covers are typically what led the way, certainly for a lot of British and European stuff that was coming our way. Yeah. I like it all. And, and like anything, it's, it's super visceral and immediate for me. Um, mm-hmm. As much as I love getting lost into the different eras of the band, yes, Frankly, John, you know, Roger Dean is the sixth band member. I mean, I can't, yeah. I can't have those records without him saying, when you listen to the music, it's going to sound and look like this. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's 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 yeah. Prague for nursery school kids in that way, and yeah. that's a that's a beautiful thing. Um, uh, art um, can transport me places like music does, but when they go hand in hand, it's it's even more incredible. And so much of that happens, even even in the the whole 80s, new music, what's coming out of England now, the second British invasion with all this crazy post-punk stuff. And, and there, there are album covers in there that are so important. I'm, none come to mind at the moment. But yeah, I mean, that, that Blind Faith album cover is just like, you, you had to know it was on those records. You, you saw they were like, what the, what the crap? They're, they're challenging mm-hmm. me in so many ways here. Uh, and I'm so intrigued. And, you know, uh, I've got to find out what the contents are actually about. Yeah. So we've, I, I've, thankfully, we had many art director who were willing to give us the benefit of the doubt and didn't kick us out of the art meeting uh, because we had 101 zany ideas and we were like, "Look, we know this is too much information. Can you help us hone it down?" You know. So that's why, like on spilt milk, you get been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's it's got to be you know it's it's got to be a nightmare for the art director when the the guys who didn't go to art school are telling them, "Well, just make it happen, dude." <laughs> yeah right well jokingly i i tell musicians who i meet that one of the things i dread most are the people that say oh i've loved your work for years and um we've been looking forward to working with you anyways here's our idea and to me as an art director obviously half the fun i have is to get a great title and respond to that um just that not to say i don't want to hear the music i don't want to hear your ideas but one of the luxuries of being a storm thorgerson or or you know who i've been permitted to be is that you can take a good title and go into an unexpected direction i mean if if i was an art director and said i want two people shaking hands in a in an abandoned um back lot in burbank <laughs> one of them's going to be on fire um that's what i think Wish You Were Here is going to be about a lot of bands. But That'll sell records. Yeah, a lot of bands <laughs> show you to the no door. No-brainer. It sure took us all back when you explained that. We knew what you were talking about, though. Yeah, you know? and that's the chance that you take sometimes when you're when you're an art director. So that's just something I'm curious about. You do like to throw everything on the table and talk about preconceived ideas as an artist yourself. You like to bring that to the table and then have that distilled by uh, a creative director or artist artist well we learned very early on if you don't like what you hear you don't like what you see etc cetera, etc cetera. ultimately doesn't matter who's to blame yeah you're the, you're to blame the if the audience doesn't like your album cover they're going to point at you they don't know who the art director is right. if they don't like your video they're going right. to point the video direct uh, you, you not the video director yeah good good point if, yeah. if you release the first single and you should have released track four instead of track one and it doesn't take off Nobody blames the record company. They blame you. And, yeah, and so yeah. we were just like, you only, we only get uh, this one go around. This is our one chance. So we're constantly, you know, I, I call it healthy desperation. There was like, it's now or never fucking do it. We had, we had friends yeah. who were getting signed to major labels. Nine months later, the A&R guy gets fired and transferred to another company. The band gets dropped. We're like, yeah. that's it. That was your shot. The politics. Sure. And yeah. so everything was so precious to us we were micromanaging everything much to many of our bandmates and collaborators dismay and maybe to our own detriment but we just we were like ah we're on the roller coaster ride let's we can't screw it up we can't screw it up so yeah, yeah. you know and, and we would uh you know <laughs> a band like chicago here, here they come again come on 
I don't think any of them were at the band meetings. Is that what they all took a vote on? No, no, no. That was completely corporate and it just got away from those, those album covers are interesting for the first four or five and then they're incredibly boring. And you know, mm. I, I know you'll know, all you guys will, there's that era of album covers where the band members are on the album cover and they're flying through the air and they're frozen and their hair is oh, yeah. Dead. Or they're they, they're all shaking hands and pointing at each other like looks like somebody, uh-huh. somebody's cracked a joke and they they were caught mid laugh. Uh, I don't I don't know if I have my facts correct, but we were told that it was a female photographer who was given the unfortunate assignment by uh, the, the head of the company. Was like, look, because I have all these brilliant singer songwriter artists, they're so boring on stage. They're they're so boring in the press when the press want to take pictures. Can you breathe some life into them for this for these album covers? You got to help me out here. Do something. And she was like, "I don't know what I'm going to do. These people are what you said. They're very mild mannered. They're not particularly yeah. extrovert. You know, they express themselves through their music. They're not all that jazz and razzmatazz when they're at a photo shoot. They're quite nervous. And she got the idea to like, bring in the wind fans, bring in the trampoline. I want to, you know, <laughs> and that's and it worked. Yeah. And so she got all these jobs to take all the boring people. And try to breathe some light. That's why you have endless album covers like this. I yeah, didn't know I was actually collecting them at one point because they were 50 cents at a thrift store. He's like, look at this but one. I, look at this one. The Beatles did that jump um, years earlier. There was that airborne shot of them pre-help. Yeah, yeah I forget yeah. that cover, but that was the precursor to whatever she was accomplishing for sure. But that was cool because that was the Beatles. So it, it was, was though. There's very few bands that would get away with something as cheeky as a white album. That's the height of brilliant minimalism and arrogance all at once. And, you know, I think no one else could do such a thing. And it's testament to the fact that a lot of bad covers, you know, forgettable covers become memorable because the music's so good. And there's some pretty bad artwork out there. I mean, case in point, you know, the the Blind Faith cover, not a great cover, strong, you know, muscle memory and, you know, musical memories, you know. I wanted to ask you about this though. Have you seen the movie? licorice quartet the movie licorice quartet yeah oh you mean the behind the music segment or there's i, I found a thing about is there's a 1970 uh, uh, yes i'm sorry i didn't know what you were referencing yeah, yeah i mean i just was looking looking up you guys and i went wait a second here's a movie about a porn star from 1970 i just wondered if you guys uh, not, saw not, that not quite a little more tasteful than that uh, so basically there's this <laughs> british uh film director who I, I was introduced to, I think, because uh, me and my friends were collecting um, Italian and French film scores that we were finding in Japan that were being reissued. Uh, many, many composers of, the, of those schools that are, are they're all extensions of like John Barry and, and a lot of those guys, right? So um, we found out that uh, there was this British film director in the late 60s, early 70s named Radley Metzger, who basically did these dramas that were uh, highly erotic, uh, basically softcore uh, adult films that are just hyper-stylized, as so much stuff was from the Italians and French at that point and, and British. Um, and Beck and I and other people we fell in love with this guy's films. Uh, and The Licorice Quartet was one of those films. Did that happen to be a threesome? No, <laughs> it, it, it didn't. It was it was a lo- the logical question, but you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, I had to ask. So, uh, Dane and I, before uh, you guys were on, we were we were talking. We said well, we got to ask you about that. How you got connected with Johnny Cash, and and tell us a little bit about that experience. Yes. Uh, well, experiences with Johnny Cash and Neil Diamond and Glenn Campbell and people I can't even believe Diana Ross. 
they've all come through producers. So okay. ideally the producer had worked with me already on something. It went well enough for him to call me when he did some keyboard work on something else. So the Johnny Cash stuff uh, came through Rick Rubin. Uh, okay. Glenn Campbell came through Julian Raymond. Uh, Diana Ross came through Peter Asher. Was that one of the later Glenn records before he passed? It was, it was uh, Glenn's last two records. Those are great records. Yeah. Okay. I saw Neil Diamond uh, in Toronto and I was, this is years ago, this was in the late 70s. It, a brilliant show. It was one of the slickest mm. um, performances. I mean, it was, it was not, there was no orchestra, but of course at the time, you know, I'd just come out of Mellotron and I'd found the Prophet 5. So I was thinking, how could so much convincing strings come off of just two keyboard players. It was for me at the time, it was just sure. it's brilliant to experience it, but the, the band was so tight and the show was so, so tight. What, what era were you working with Neil? This was 2006. I want to say, I don't even remember the name of the album, but it was another Rick Rubin production. Did you tour? Or no, you he has, he has a touring band, but actually Rick was inviting him to work with musicians that weren't in his band. I see. So okay. Ben Montench plays keys. I play keys. It's a good album. Yeah. Uh, Smokey Hormel plays guitar. There's a, a just a bunch of people, uh, often people that Rick would work with at that time. Um, and you know, I got to meet Neil, but everybody else. Well, I, I met Glenn too, but John, Johnny was not there. Jo Johnny was uh, in Nashville. Uh, one of his producers came out, whose name slips my mind, but he was great to talk to. Uh, he didn't know me from Adam, but we got along fantastically. He was more of the old Nashville guard, and we would talk about. Glenn, like Al Delory and Glenn Campbell, Wichita lineman era, Galveston era, Jimmy, Jimmy Webb era stuff. And which are such incredible moments in the American country music legacy because they crossed over to such a degree, but they're, they're so masterfully done. When you go into a session, is it always charted or do you, are you allowed the freedom to kind of hear it, interpret it and respond to it um, viscerally? Uh, I've almost never played on sessions where things are meticulously charted out the way you would have had on a Stevie yeah. album or any of those, any of those, uh, traditional Quincy Jones, um, Arif Mardin, um, yeah. uh, albums. Uh, I've got chord charts and if I don't, I will insist on them giving me 10 minutes to create one. Cause I've got, I need to have a lead sheet to follow. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. I mean, that, it's also the best, it's the most fun way of approaching it in my view. I think that's, you know, but to work under pressure like that, it's one thing to say, okay, send it to me, give me, give me three or four days to work with it. And then I'll come to you versus going into a session cold and, and being good within 15 minutes. That's well, what inevitably happens is, I mean, I'd like to think that one of the reasons I get repeat business is because I have an improvisational side. And I, I love the jigsaw puzzle. I don't, <laughs> I like being given as much time as I can have, but of course that's, that's not an option. Um, I love hearing a song for the first time. And as a fellow songwriter going, all right, what are the producer and artists? What are they looking for? How can I help fill in the blanks? Because often they'll say things like, we know we're hearing keyboards in the chorus. We don't know what you got to make it just pop, man. It needs to sound like a chorus. And I'm like, yeah okay here goes nothing now often ideas will pop into my head particularly if i'm really excited about the tune i'm like feeling yeah. connection to it but just as often it's like man okay i need to figure out i really need to try to understand what they're going for 
And I'm, uh, I just start, I just start shooting ideas out there and then everybody puts their mind together. No, we weren't, you can try something that's piano, but we weren't hearing acoustic piano. So let's, can we maybe make it electric piano? Can you sit maybe in that realm? That brings me to the next, next question. When you go to a session and you've got a controller, you've got your laptop, you've got samples, you've got the acoustic piano in the room, a B3, when they call upon you to bring your flavor, your, your concepts, your, your sonic palette to the floor, how familiar do you have to be with all of your samples and all your synth components to actually rise to the occasion under pressure like that? I, that's why I talk about, yeah, give it to me, and you know, give me five days and I'll come back to you. You don't always get that. How do, you, how do you bring the best forward if you have to draw on all of that stuff? Uh, it's just practice. Yeah. You, I mean, I have to know, I have to know what my sound palette uh, is available to me at any given moment and hope that it, it works when I fire it up. We may get, go down a path of exploring. And in the old days, if they wanted to try brass or string arrangement, they'd have to hire a guy to arrange string or brass, bring in the players. Right. And only then could they decide, is this really going to be right for the song? Now they've got me like bringing up brass samples and I'm improvising yeah. on a spot, a brass arrangement. Well, depending on the song, that's going to be easier or not. And um, I, I'm even like, you know what? If you let me take this home for 24 hours, I'll give you a crazy string arrangement. But yeah, let's do our best now. It, it, there's, there's, no, there's no one way that it's done. Thankfully, I work with a lot of producers who do have some kind of concept in mind. So if they're saying, I'm hearing a part that's uh, percussive in the verse, you know, well, I might go, well, let, let's try it on a spiky percussive instrument, like a, a clavinet uh, yeah. chord, a dulcimer. You know, we've got all the samples. Let's try that. Well, right away, they, the artist might say, that's cool, but I want something more electronic sounding. This sounds too old. This sounds too vintage and, and antique. Okay. Mm. So we'd shift that idea over to a spiky synth sound, something that is electronic, that has, still has that same attack as those. So it's, um, it's, just, it's just constantly... Trying, 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 trying. Now the whole time, I've got to be uh, improvising melody shapes, chord voicings based on my chart uh, to not get in the way of the lead vocal, uh, enhance the lead vocal, uh, do something supportive with the rhythm section because I wasn't there on the day the drums, bass, and guitar were tracked. It's impressive that you can kind of keep all those balls in the air but equally impressive to me is that you can keep track of the, the archive <laughs> of the tool set. Well, you get your favorite, you get your favorites. You start finding out this sound yeah. and this kind of idea worked really well with these last two clients. I don't have any other ideas. I'll try, I'll try with this guy right now and see if he digs it. Sure. Your um, bag of tricks is a lot. I mean, I'm not saying a drummer doesn't walk in with a kit and perhaps some, favorite African drums and a few other kind of percussive items. Well, hang on now. I mean, there's, there's been the snare drum war before that I've gone into where, well, can we hear that 21st snare again? Because we like 19 and, but 22 is just, it's just a little too honky. Just can you I've put seen a five day <laughs> snare drum war. Oh, thank God. Those days are kind yeah, of, yeah, no, the, the, the legend is apparently on uh, super tramp breakfast in America. That was, that was two weeks of snare auditions. 
Okay. That's when you get your drum tech in to do all that. That album does sound good, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why God created pinball and, and pool table, because <laughs> yeah, the rest right? of the band would just go down the hall for a week and let the drummer, you know. Okay, so you had a writing session at one point with, with Brian Wilson. And I think you described it as surrealistic, possibly. It was... It was uh, I describe it as a tease. It was a tease. Um, uh I, I created the analogy of uh, going on a date and you're very excited to go out on this date. In fact, you can't sleep the night before lots of anxiety pumping. What's it going to be like? Blah, 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 blah. All the questions we ask themselves, you go on the date much to your surprise within about an hour, 30 minutes, you're relaxed. You're like, Oh, I can be myself with this person. They seem God, they're even better in person than I thought. Uh, this is going really well. We're just, wow, we have so much in common. Blah, blah. I can't wait to kiss her goodnight at the end of the date. And when can we meet next? Although I didn't kiss Brian Wilson, everything else would be the same. Um, <laughs> so what happened was, thankfully, uh, Don was who, was, who was, I think, working with Brian at the time, was courting him, uh, was teaming him up with a variety of people. That's how we got the Ringo co-write as well, was through Don. Mm. That yeah. couldn't have gone better. So he hooked us up with Brian. And, uh, you know, it, we, I did not want to show up empty handed. So I concocted, um, uh, just this basic idea with me mumbling a melody, no words, um, the verse and chorus that I thought was very, very solid, uh, that, that, uh, I could present. I played it for Andy, my partner at the time. He, he agreed. He goes, I think this is a great idea to go in there cold with, we got to have something. So we go in there with this idea. Sure. And, uh, you know, we meet at the Beach Boys warehouse in Santa Monica. Brian gets there. Don gets there. Don gets a phone call as soon as we walk to the door. He says, oh, well, you guys sit on the couch here and get to know each other. And we're literally like first date. Everybody's twiddling their thumbs. Nobody's talking. Nobody's saying anything to anybody. There's all these uh, assistants and handlers and coworkers mm. running around for Don and him. And so Don gets off this call. We walk into a music workspace area with a piano. Uh, Don says, so Roger, I, you know, I hear you, you have something you'd like to play for Brian. And let's, you know, let's get started. Okay. I'm, I'm just, I'm shaking in my shoes. I'm like, what am I about Stop to bad. do? Because <laughs> first and foremost, I'm about to sing something that ideally he's supposed to sing. I don't have words, so I'm not going to sell anybody on some great lyrical idea. And, um, you know, I'm borrowing from his repertoire because I didn't want, I wanted to write something that I felt was in, uh, that, was, that was familiar. I didn't want to hand him sure. a left turn, right? But there's all these people like looking over our shoulder and leaning on the piano. I don't know who any of them are. Why, can I ask why you didn't bring something pre-recorded just to kind of make that less nerve wracking and a bit more... I had found, and I think Andy would have agreed, that in our brief co-writing uh, experience, it, w it should never be about here. It's you mm -hmm. want to invite the person into that collaborative process. Good point. Oh, sure. yeah. yeah, so yeah. We, yeah. we wanted to get the uh, snowball rolling down the hill. Yeah. Make sure it was open-ended uh, mm -hmm. for people to weigh in, including Don. You know, Don was obviously going to have his opinion on, on stuff. Sure. How'd it go? I sat down and somehow made it through a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, which was all I had. I, and I realized that. And as soon as I stopped 
where after the second chorus, where the next part of the song should be a solo or what have you, Brian goes, and now we do the surfer girl bridge here because it was like a, a, a six, eight shuffle, like, like surfer uh-huh. girl. and then he goes, let me show you. And I get up off the piano bench, Brian sits down and he improvises this bridge idea, which was absolutely in the same feel and attitude as the ideas I presented. So it made total sense. I knew why he was saying that. Yeah. And he didn't have words either. So he was like, he's like, did it, did it. And he's doing <laughs> that fucking thing. And I'm oh, like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. And just smiling, just ear to ear grin. How is this happening? How is this happening? Mm. And then he finished, he finished the bridge and then he goes, yeah. And then maybe we can go into the chorus again or modulate the key. And he goes, Oh, and Roger, I love that half diminished chord you play going into the chorus. And I'm like, Oh, of course he did. <laughs> he is now coherent, alert, articulate, awake, Brian, that he wasn't yeah. back there. On no, the couch. all the legends you're hearing about how Landy has diagnosed him and he's, highly dysfunctional and this, this and that and the other. And he needs all these people. No, he doesn't. Not when he's speaking the language of music, he was sharp as attack and me, Andy and Don ignoring all these onlookers. Now the four of us were making music. Now the, the, the process had begun. Brian was excited. Don was excited. We saw that we could do this. Oh, let, what's next. Okay. Well, well, just then I kid you not. We hadn't been at the piano more than 20, 30 minutes. One of the onlookers taps Brian on the shoulder and says, um, Brian, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's, it's 2.30 now. Uh, it's time for your, your afternoon nap. I'm going to need to excuse you and everybody else, and we'll have to pick this up another time. Oh, wow. And you could, so, you could have heard a pin drop. And, he, and Brian goes, okay, well, I got to go, guys. This has been great. Thanks so much. Really nice meeting you. What a fun song. Okay, see you later. And that was it? Was there a second date or no. did you ever report? No. We never heard from anybody again. We never heard from Donwa's oh, office, man. anybody from the Brian Wilson camp. Now, we came to learn later that Don did not end up working with him in any extended capacity. I th- they did something, it was like videotape, and I think it was like for a, it was something live. Oh, I, I just wasn't made for these times that live. Yeah, I think, mm. yeah, but there was no, yeah. they did not do a record together, is my point. Right. So uh, that was not the beginning it. and the end of it. And, you know, it almost would have been easier if he had said, thank you for sharing. I don't care for this idea, but, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. That's not what happened. We couldn't have gotten a better response from one of our heroes and we're just like beside ourselves. Like, oh, my God, we're going to put the Spilt Milk album on hold. We're going to go on a, a writing campaign with Brian Wilson for the next two months. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, Mid-92. Mm. Oh, God. my God. Yeah. Could you ever finish that song and just get a hold of his people and say, we're using his chorus? <laughs> I, I, I don't let, I didn't let sleeping dogs die because I poured my heart and soul into that idea. And it's a song called, I wish it would rain on my first solo album. Oh, oh it is. Okay. okay. Okay, cool. And what I did was um, I kept my verse and chorus. I wrote lyrics. I wrote a new bridge. I wrote a whole new outro. I rearranged the song top to bottom, but the verse chorus that you hear is the verse chorus uh-huh. that we shared with him. Well, thank you so much. I know you got a roll, and we really appreciate your time and the stories and wish you nothing but the best of luck. Uh, call me again. This, who, doesn't, who doesn't want to spend an afternoon this way? This is, this is great fun. Fabulous meeting you, Roger. Great talking Meet to you, you guys. Roger. We'll see you. Okay, take care. Thanks for everything. Bye-bye. You got it. Bye-bye. Bye. 
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.